Welcome to Faith in Capital, a show where persons and communities of Christian faith are invited to engage the system of capitalism theologically and ethically, or you might say from a faith perspective. I'm your host, Chase Tibbs. Okay, so now we're in our, uh, this is the second episode. If you uh, hadn't had a chance to check out the first, I recommend it. We we start off talking about the appropriation of king. And there's a lot of ways, uh, David and I, uh, we, we think that uh, king is appropriated. And then we spend a lot of time thinking about the theology of king. King's thoughts on God and what the beloved community is and how he suggested we pursue it. So in this second episode, I want to dive into uh, three things. One, King's triple evils. Two, King on Marx, socialism, and communism. And then finally, we can wrap it up a little bit on King and his relation to labor, especially towards the end of his life. Asango? It's going to be awesome. Sweet. Okay, so let's go ahead and start us off. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about King's triple evils and perhaps give us an example as to how he saw their interrelatedness? Yeah, yeah. So he names them using a, a different language occasionally, but they are uh, racism, militarism, and extreme materialism or poverty. Um, so, yeah, and he explicitly states that these are interrelated, that they build off of one another. Um, and I think what King is naming here is a kind of proto-intersectional analysis. Um, that language wasn't around then, so I'm not going to use it. I mean, he didn't use that language, but that they really come together to create a unique kind of oppression against uh, black people and against poor people generally, because white people are also oppressed by racism directed against black people. Um, but this unique kind of oppression that that isn't just the three put together, that it's something sort of some unique demonic creation that when they all come together. Um, so I think the, the easiest way in the way that King most explicitly puts these together is through the lens of the Vietnam War. Mm -hmm. um, so... <coughs> Listeners might be familiar with his Beyond Vietnam speech he gives in uh, April 4th, um, exactly a year before he's assassinated. Um, and in this speech, he talks about both how America is, quote, the greatest purveyor of violence in the world today, mm. unquote, um, but also how these, these three, these triple evils are uh, sort of built in together um, so that we have the war um, that's causing this buildup of militarism. Um, the Cold War also contributes to this buildup of militarism. Um, this is taking away all the resources that Johnson, uh, president at the time, had talked about using for his quote-unquote great society. Yes. Um, so King describes the war as a Demonic destructive <coughs> suction tube. Um, I love that language. Demonic just... destruction suction tube. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That that all of these resources <coughs> that could be going towards alleviating poverty um, could be, you know, used to address real problems are instead being used in what King describes as an evil war. Um, that really is just there to consolidate 
uh, Western colonial power. Um, and that racism is baked into the war, too, that there's both racism against uh, the Vietnamese people, um, that they're seen as subhuman, and that black people and other minorities are dying in far greater numbers uh, based on their population uh, than white people, that that poor people are the ones that are sort of feeding this military machine. Um, and yes. that the war is based around, I mentioned colonialism, but a kind of uh, international exploitation um, that's based on a kind of capitalistic system. Yeah, um, capitalist and white supremacist, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So that all of these work together to justify the Vietnam War um, and to continue to justify just like colonial mindsets in general. Um, and that really all are fundamentally dehumanizing. Um, that's perhaps most obvious in racism, um, that uh, racism is dehumanizing, but also that militarism um, sort of inevitably leads to war and that war is inherently dehumanizing both for people that are doing the killing and for the people that are being, uh, that are having war waged against them. And the materialism sort of inherently objectifies the world. And as we talked about in the last episode, denies this sort of I-thou relationship that's at the heart of the beloved community and turns things into an I-it relationship. Wow, yeah. So, so I heard you saying uh, that there's so much complex interrelatedness here that for King, it eventually just becomes... Uh, impossible not to name Vietnam the Vietnam War as just blatantly a demonic, uh, destructive. What was the last word? Demonic, destructive. Uh, yeah, he describes it as a demonic, destructive suction tube. Uh, absolutely, yeah. So, so for King, it's the. It's a serious sin. On one hand, you have the government wasting money on war that should have been using, uh, that could have been used to. Uh, uh, build well-being for people in the U.S., then the war is both racist and it's creating poverty and mass dehumanize, uh, dehumanization and death in Vietnam. And the U.S. is sending black folk and poor, often rural working whites to die in Vietnam, right? It's not rich white capitalists. Then, right. Viet yeah, Vietnam was a non-white nation fighting to liberate themselves from white Western imperialism. I mean, it's, it's, an, it's unbelievable, the interconnectedness of, of the triple evils of racism, economic exploitation or poverty, and militarism. Yeah, and, and I mean, to, to dig into the sort of spiritual, demonic aspect of it, um, I mean, King really, he's using that language intentionally, and he, he really sees this as the possibility of the spiritual death of America. Um, his final sermon that he wasn't able to give because he was assassinated was titled why America may go to hell. Um, and he, throughout his career, uses the parable of Lazarus and Dives, or Lazarus and the rich man, um, where uh, Lazarus is a poor man that's outside of the rich man's gate and is denied just basic uh, food, shelter, and dies, and goes to be with uh, Abraham in paradise. And the rich man is sent to... Uh, literally Hades in the Greek, um, sent to hell and is in torment. 
And King uses this parable multiple times to say, America, this is where you're headed. Um, mm. This is where you're going if you continue down this path um, for towards uh, a spiritual and ultimately then also material destruction because he also talked quite a bit about how in the Cold War and nuclear proliferation that we're in real danger of destroying ourselves as a species if we get into a nuclear war. Um, and now we have the possibility of that via climate change as well. Um, so that gets into why, why love really is practical, because it's only through love that these demonic forces can ultimately be defeated and that we can live together uh, in a way that is mutually beneficial and even allows for our survival. And and that's excellent. I also want to, I want to name again that um, love because that word is used by so many people and it's usually not what King uh, it's not and any form of what King how King used it. But love for King ends up changing systems. It, it transforms communities. Uh, yeah. It's not this hyper individualistic. Uh, do you how do you feel about another person or another group? And I'll. Along lines with the triple uh, evils, poverty for King is something that's created, right? We in the first episode we discussed how how uh, he spoke of true compassion as more than flinging a coin to a beggar. It comes mm -hmm. to see an edifice which produces beggars needs restructuring, and King mm -hmm. King often discussed his abhorrence with simply like the wealth gap of the time. I mean, he he talks mm -hmm. about it in so many sermons and and uh, articles. And uh, one of the things I think that's interesting is uh, what we're about to get into as King as a closet democratic socialist is that the policies that he really threw out here, he knew that black folks were disproportionately uh, exploited and, and uh, way poorer than, than white folks. Um, although he definitely recognized that that millions of white folks, especially in the South, were still incredibly uh, poor, and some of the policies that he were that he was talking about at the towards the end of his life were things like an income guarantee, right? That UBI, the Universal Basic Income. He also mm -hmm. talked about a job guarantee. He he mm -hmm. he railed against the presence, the unnecessary. Uh, presence of unemployment, and mm -hmm. and he obviously didn't say, well, those people are just being lazy. Um, mm -hmm. Another thing he he wanted to do was public and social housing programs. So uh, I throw that out as a almost like a a point to say that King sees these triple evils of racism, poverty, and militarism as intertwined. Uh, he also has these policy suggestions that really reveal his closet democratic socialism. So let's go ahead and dive into King's relation, if you would, to socialism and democratic socialism. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, so um, like you said, I like that description as a closet democratic socialist. Um, yeah, that he really... He's joining into a long tradition within uh, academic uh, black theologians and uh, black intellectuals um, that adhered to democratic socialism and sometimes uh, straight up Marxism. 
Um, so Gary Dorian, I think we mentioned last episode, names us really well in his uh, two books on the black social gospel. And also uh, Larry Rivers has a great article on this called Militant Reconciling Love. Um, but he talks about what's called the, the Rankin Network, which included people like Howard Thurman and Benjamin Mays and Mordecai Johnson. Um, <clears throat> but that they are working since the 1940s and in some ways even before towards a theological critique of capitalism. Um, and in one of their meetings, they actually name capitalism explicitly as a social sin. Um, that capitalism is not just like a bad idea economically, but it's theologically untenable. Um, so they, mm, mm -hmm. they have these, these meetings, um, they have various journals that are devoted to this, um, but they realize that especially in the Cold War period, um, that if they're going to be sort of heard at all in the public sphere, they need to distance themselves from what can be seen as communist. So King um, sort of takes the same tack. Uh, towards the end of his life, he becomes more willing to talk about this publicly. But from Boston University and even earlier, he's very much committed to this idea of democratic socialism and critique of capitalism and sees uh, communism, even if he disagrees with parts of it or parts of Marxism, as a kind of prophetic critique of Christianity. Um, and really, really values the uh, sort of economic critique that it brings forward. Yeah, absolutely. And and I definitely I want to dive into Marx and communism. But uh, before we get there, yeah, let's just like rename real quick that I mean King is emerging from the Black social gospel of Mordecai Wyatt Johnson, Benjamin mm -hmm. Mays, Howard Thurman. He consumes Roshan Bush's social uh, social gospel at Crozier mm -hmm. Seminary in Boston University. Uh, he had a Black socialist president and mentor at Morehouse, right? Uh, Mays, mm -hmm. and he had a Christian socialist dean at Boston, Walter mm -hmm. Mulder. He has, and then he was surrounded um, by socialists through his uh, work with the civil rights movement. Uh, mm -hmm. Friends mm -hmm. Bayard. Rustin and A. Philip Randolph. He worked with or near Fannie Lou Hamer, Ella Baker, Diane Nash, Ralph Abernathy, Paul Farmer, Adam Clayton Powell Jr. I mean, the list is unbelievable. So, so I just I think it's really important the name. Understanding King without understanding the impact of the Black social gospel, but also socialism um, mm -hmm. and anti-capitalism is is just it, you can't do it. You can't find a king that's not touched by socialism or black social gospel. I mean, that's something that I think Dorian very explicitly and rightly names in his book that you can't make sense of King without this tradition. Um, and that much like we talked last episode about not sort of hero worship of King. Yes. Um, seeing King as a larger movement that, yeah, that we need to see this larger movement that had been working towards producing a leader like King who could uh, work towards these projects in community with all of these other uh, thinkers and activists. But this has been a project for decades. Um, so much like, you know, Rosa Parks didn't just one day decide to like not get up on a bus that she had been a part of the NAACP that yes. she had been trained as an activist, um, that she had been wanting to do this for a long time. Um, just like that, that, 
King also is is a part of this long legacy that that you say rightly can't he can't be divorced from that. Yes, yeah, um, excellent. So, so I think you and I would both agree that there's a, a serious degree of being a closet democratic socialist. Although early on, early on, I think it was back, either he was doing his masters or uh, an undergrad when he first started dating uh, Coretta Scott. He 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 wrote to her. He said he was more social, quote, more socialistic in economic theory than capitalist. And yet, I am not so opposed to capitalism that I have failed to see its relative merits. But I, I say that to say that um, uh, early, early on, King names that he is way more socialist than he is capitalist. Um, mm-hmm. And now let's yeah, let's go ahead and dive into specifically his articulation around Marx and communism, because he's taught and mentored through the uh, through the civil rights movement by uh, advisors, communist advisors, Stanley Levison and Jack O'Dell. And so to, to kind of dive into the relation between King's take on uh, or King's take on Marx and communism, I thought it'd be interesting to Take one of his later works. It's it's not one of his more uh, radical. It's not in written in his radical years. His final two or three years that King scholars kind of widely say he definitely had a shift in what is that like sixty four sixty five. But this is a, a sermon to Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta, Georgia, and it's called "Can a Christian Be a Communist?" It's written in nineteen sixty two. So, yeah, if you would, um, I'd like to kind of uh, go through it a little bit. Yeah, let's dive into it. So, sweet, yeah, let's, uh, let's just go ahead and dive into it. He, King starts off with saying that, can a, Christian be a, uh, can a Christian be a communist? He says, an emphatic, no. Wah, wah. Uh, yeah, King says, Christianity and communism are diametrically opposed philosophies. And he gives a few different reasons. Uh, David, you want to start us off with one of the reasons that he says Christians and communists uh, are diametrically opposed? Sure, yeah. So one of the, one of the main uh, problems that King has with communism is what has been described as dialectical materialism, or sort of the reduction of history to material conditions. Um, and King, as someone who wants to put personality at the heart of existence is really skeptical of this idea that sort of your material conditions in some way determine who you are and determine the way that history is moving. Um, so, so yeah, that's, that's a major problem that King has. He, in another uh, speech, he says that Marx followed Feuerbach too much and didn't read enough Hegel, basically. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, yeah, and that's that's along the lines where he's talking about with the uh, the secular atheistic uh, nature of a communist philosophy, and and I and I do want to say that King understands communism in a particular way that just like I would say capitalism and socialism and communism or even Marxism, there's never one single um, articulation of of these political, whether, you know, you say they're a philosophy or a political economy, but this is the particular way in which King understands it. And yes, I, I hear you saying that he talks about it as a secular atheistic thing. And this is in no way mm-hmm. King defending theism because King himself is not a theist in that sense as the 
as majority of Christians would probably think of it. But he does say that this dialectical materialism can't be kind of aligned with um, his understanding, his, his approach to um, what God is as love. Um, and so, yeah, another thing he kind of throws out is the methods and the means. The methods or, or the means of achieving this better world, um, he refers to Lenin, uh, are... Communism is uh, tolerant of, of violence uh, or, or lying. He throws out a, a few things. And mm -hmm. yeah, so King says that that's not, those aren't Christian uh, methods. Right. And King very much wanted to stress this idea that the, the ends are preexistent in the means, as yes. he says. Um, that you can't work towards uh, the idea of the beloved community that he was so committed to that has at its heart, love and relationship in ways, in ways that are opposed to those things. And I mean, on the one hand, I think that that can sound kind of idealistic, um, that like, you know, you can't do anything immoral if you want to achieve moral ends, um, that maybe that's too simplistic or something. But I also, I mean, I think that he has a real point here in the sense that just achieving revolution, just throwing, overthrowing the current power structure doesn't necessarily lead to a better system. If we look at history, we can see time and again that a uh, like, tyrannical dictator is toppled and then another tyrannical dictator takes the place of the other dictator. You know, that it's, it doesn't, like, even someone like France Fanon, who is an advocate for certain kinds of violence, recognizes that just overthrowing the oppressor isn't enough to bring about the kind of transformation that Fanon was interested in, what he calls the creation of the new man. Um, <clears throat> so, so, yeah, I think that that point of King's should be taken seriously. And I don't think that that, as you said, is a critique of all of Marxist thought or all of communist thought because it's wide and varied, but it's something that should be, uh, yeah, taken seriously. Excellent, yeah. And then finally, his third thing is that ultimately the end is, is different. Although this is interesting because he says the ends of Christianity and communism are different, but then he kind of, the majority in the bulk, I would say the, this, the last two-thirds of the sermon get into something that perhaps contradicts this in a little bit. But So he says third, ultimately the end. The state is the the end goal of, of communism as King understands it at that time, um, recognizing that the state would wither away um, in, in this communist philosophy. But so for him, the, here's another means in the end thing. Humans are the means to the end of the state rather than human beings in themselves being the end. And that he says communism has a willingness to deprive humans of freedom, the freedom to deliberate, decide, and respond which he also says, I mean, that's not something that is happening in the U.S., but he says that the communism that he sees is neither um, allows that. So, yeah, so those are the three things, right? The secular nature of it, the methods, and then the end. So then King moves to talk about communism in a different way. He, he says communism is a Christian heresy, and this is the bulk of the sermon, I, I want to say. It's the last almost two-thirds, maybe more, of the sermon. So he starts out by saying, can a Christian be a communist? No. But then he moves and says that communism is a Christian heresy. And the quote that we, we started off with in the first episode, I just want to read that again. He says, indeed, 
it may be that communism is a necessary corrective for a Christianity that has been all too passive and a democracy that has been all too inert. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, so, so I think right here he, he's making a transition to talk about what communism can do um, uh, positive or, and has done positively. Yeah, so, so what else? Let, let's go ahead and, and go through this. What else kind of jumps out to you? Yeah, so I think that you named something interesting when you said that he he says that the end of communism is the state, but he also kind of admires the vision of communism. Mm -hmm. And I think that has something to do with with his questioning or critique of how we get from sort of the proletarian revolt, revolution, to the classless utopia. Um, that there's some, he thinks that there's something of a disconnect there, and I... I'm not as familiar with Marxist theory as you are, but I think that he's not alone in, in questioning how Marx exactly saw that, the state dissolving happening. Um, but that he does see, in another sermon, he talks about Marx as kind of a visionary of a new world. Um, so that even though he, he does call it a heresy, um, the heresies are not like totally divorced from the Christian tradition. Um, that they contain important truths of the Christian tradition. Um, so talking about it as a heresy, I think is not to reject it, but is to, as he says, use it to challenge us, like yes. said, or a necessary corrective. Um, so that, you know, if you look back in history, something like uh, Arianism is a heresy, but it also taught the church something very important about how we think about uh, Jesus and the Trinity. Um, and so him naming communism as a heresy, I think he's also saying this is something really important. And it also, like we were saying, points to something that's a fundamental failing of American Western Christianity. Absolutely. Yeah. He says basically like this white capitalist U.S. Christianity, and he, he, he riffs on it for a while, has identified Christ with racial segregation, uh, the creation of poverty and the exploitation of labor and social oppression. Uh, he says, quote, too often the churches talk about a future good over yonder and are not concerned about the present evil over here. And, mm -hmm. End quote. And he, he dives into this um, need for a, you talk about a world over there, but how about a new world right now? And then he mm -hmm. says, he says, quote, I don't mind saying this morning that too often in capitalism, we've taken necessities from the many to give luxuries to the few. I will never be content. I will never rest until all of God's children ha can have the basic necessities of life. And, 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 quote, and, he, and then uh, one more thing I want to point out is he says, Marx reveals the danger of the profit motive as the sole basis for an economic system. Right, right. Yeah, and that gets into the, you know, the triple evils that we've discussed um, and the idea that they lead to what King calls in another place thingification, um, like the production of objects. Um, yeah, and that, that if, if Christians had been true to Christianity, he says in this sermon, you know, slavery wouldn't have existed, segregation wouldn't currently exist as it did then, um, that in many ways the Christianity that 
that is accepted as Christianity in America is antithetical to the aims of Christianity. Um, he has this great line in letter from a Birmingham jail where he says, you know, he's walking sort of amongst the grand churches of the South and says, um, what people worship here? Who is their God? Um, and he's saying like, how could you possibly be worshiping the same God that I've encountered in the gospels mm -hmm. and be okay with the kind of injustice that exists in, in the world and in the nation? Um, and that's not just a critique of the Southern church because, and he called Chicago the most racist city he'd ever visited. So it's very much a Northern problem as well as a Southern problem. Yeah. So, so communism in the latter half of this whole sermon is a, is an, an important critique of capitalism and of U.S. American Christianity. So, I, I, and you were talking about uh, one of the lines here. I just want to read here. He says, oh, these problems, and by problems he means white supremacy, right, poverty and extreme inequality, lack of basic needs being met, and militarism. So, so he says, quote, oh, these problems that we face in America and the world wouldn't be here today if we were as dedicated to Christianity as we ought to be. And it mm -hmm. may well be that communism is in this world today because Christians haven't been Christian enough and democracies haven't been democratic enough. It may well be that the success of communism is due to the failure of Christians to live up to the basic principles of Christianity. And so he really, he really says that communism, uh, as he sees it, is functioning as a... Um, a necessary corrective to to kind of turn Christianity away from its oppressive, exploitative, and hierarchical uh, ways way of being in the world towards a more just, a more liberative, a more uh, radically transformative faith. Yeah, and that he explicitly, as you're mentioning, I mean, agrees with Marx's analysis of the the fundamental failure of capitalism to account for humanity um, and to account for the social nature of humanity, but also just basic human dignity, um, that capitalism sort of necessarily degrades the humanity of people. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, it's right to say that King <clears throat> rejects Marxism. Um, and I think that he, is doing that, um, you know, he's doing that on grounds uh, that he believes in. Um, but it's also worth naming the the sort of environment that he was in, where associating with communism meant uh, surveillance by the FBI, meant uh, being oppressed by the government in ways that uh, sort of your standard citizen might not experience. Um, and Lerone Martin and others have documented the extent to which King was under FBI surveillance um, and oppression, even without like explicitly naming himself as a communist or a socialist. Um, and that this is a common tactic that's used against civil rights uh, workers at the time. So, so yeah, that he is he's thinking carefully about how he's using language. Um, I don't want to say that he's being disingenuous, but I, I think that we need to take into account where, what, what environment he's 
talking and when he's saying these things. Yeah, and I'm definitely, I, I think Marxist analysis uh, has been really, is really pivotal, especially in our times, um, 50 years into a neoliberal era. Um, I don't think... First of all, that there is a single way of understanding communism. Uh, if you know anything about the history of communism or the history of socialism or the history of Marxism, that's just that's just not a thing. Um, there are plurality of articulations, and that communists, socialists, and Marxists, just like capitalists, they disagree with one another, and that's important. Um, one of the th- one of the last things I want to name here is that in where do we go from here? Uh, one of King's work he critiques the, quote, morbid fear of communism, end quote, Mm -hmm. in America. And he says that that is used to declare, quote, eternal opposition to poverty, racism, and militarism, end quote. So I think that to summarize King's take on communism is that on one hand, no. Uh, He says a no to communism. Um, But on the other hand, uh, he does not think that we should be anti-communist. And he thinks... American anti-communism is being used to justify American imperialism, racism, and exploitation. Uh, mm-hmm. And he he sees communists actually as being more faithful to the poor and to the oppressed and to the work of Christian values, you know, Christian principles, than capitalists and U.S. Christians are. He praises uh, Marx's analysis and a critique of capitalism as a system that prioritizes profits over people and exploits human labor. And then finally, definitely as a, Democra- uh, as a closet democratic socialist, um, uh, I think King is, is really intent, one of the reasons why he does this sermon, um, uh, which is a mirror of one he did nine years earlier, but he says, uh, one of the things is that he sees that anti-communist fervor, this hate and this fear of socialism and communism and, and Marxism is actually just a, a another American way of legitimizing American imperialism and domination. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I really, you know, it's a little bit dangerous to speculate based on what King might have thought if he had not been assassinated, um, mm-hmm. if he were allowed more time to work through some of this. And uh, But I think he may well have signed on to or at least worked alongside of the kind of project that Cornell West lays out in Prophesied Deliverance, um, a kind of marriage of what West calls progressive Marxism yeah. um, and Christian faith. Um, which, as I understand it, is a rejection of the like totalitarianism, like Stalinist approach sure. to communism or Marxism, uh, but keeps those kinds of fundamental uh, sort of critiques of capitalism. Um, but regardless, I mean, we don't need to speculate, as you said, like King was a socialist and was committed to socialism and explicitly rejects capitalism multiple times in public. Yep. Um, so, yeah, King That's, certainly cannot be made out to be a capitalist with any <laughs> integrity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and while I think I you know I would disagree with King on a, on some of his analysis, um, I also think it's important to say let's let's try and and let King be King in his own context. And as we exist in our very new context, um, although there's lots of similarities. 
then we as Christians and uh, we as uh, just people living under uh, a capitalist global order now, we can ask new questions in a new context and, and, and come to um, new analyses. Uh, so, mm-hmm. yeah, so that's mm-hmm. great. Um, the la- this, is, this has been really great. Uh, the, the last section I want to kind of dive into a little bit is uh, King's relation to labor. Labor, we, we've talked about love and, we, and we've mentioned power in both of these episodes, but I think there is an interesting quote that he does in Where Do We Go From Here? And, and maybe you'd have some things to, uh, to discuss on King's um, relation to power in terms of labor, but he, he quotes Walter Ruther's definition of power. He says, power is the ability of a labor union like UAW to make the most powerful corporation in the world, General Motors, say yes when it says when it wants to say no. That's power. Mm-hmm. That's power. Mm-hmm. So so end quote. So so King is thinking more radically towards the end of the last two three years of his life. He's becoming more distressed, more depressed, and uh, he starts to engage with labor more often. You want to say a little bit about that? Yeah, so I love that quote, and uh, right around that same place in that speech, he he says simply, quote, power is the ability to achieve purpose, um, and that power is something that needs to be uh, pursued by people that are wanting to do good, um, and that he, I mean, throughout his time, as a public theologian and as a civil rights activist, he's giving speeches to unions. Um, he's engaging with unions, as we've named A. Philip Randolph, who was the founder of the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, which is a very important union. Um, one of his, the main people that helps to organize the Montgomery bus boycott works uh, with that union. So he's, he's very much tied to organized labor um, and towards the end of his life, he really moves his focus in that direction. Uh, King would sometimes talk about two phases of the civil rights movement, the first being getting rid of legal Jim Crow segregation, and the second uh, working to eradicate poverty. Um, and that's where King was assassinated and abandoned by many people when he turned towards eradicating poverty and working with organized labor. Um, so... Uh, Many people probably know, but it's important to note that he was assassinated uh, when he was supporting a strike of garbage people in Memphis, Tennessee, Um, that he went there despite the fact that he knew that it was dangerous, um, but he said that he felt that he needed to do that. And a year before his assassination, we talked about his opposition to Vietnam, He talks about how his conscience left him no other choice, largely because of the effect that it was having on poor people in the country, Um, that the poverty that it was creating was a big reason that he couldn't get it off of his conscience, even though he knew that it would have really detrimental effects for him to publicly denounce Vietnam. Um, And something that sometimes gets lost is King's final planned campaign called the Poor People's Campaign was one where he was planning on occupying Washington, D.C. with poor people from across the nation and 
doing everything that he could to shut down the entire city until lawmakers addressed the ways that poverty was brought on these people. Yes, um, yes, he's that's a that's called a general strike. Um, yeah. So so he's so he wants to shut down an entire city, shut down the commerce, shut down the the production, shut down the flow of mm-hmm. capital. Uh, is what a, a Marxist analysis would talk about, right? This is this is wealth and um, that's connected to power, and um, so he he's calling yeah for a general strike. And you're right, like he he dies. Uh, what is it, the night or, or two nights after the supporting of black workers who are on strike because their employer is killing them? Right. Literally. Yes. Yes. Um, yeah. Yeah, because two garbage workers had had died largely because of uh, the way that they were treated and not allowed to have adequate working conditions. Um, I mean, they were crushed in a garbage truck. Yes. Yeah. Um, so, so love in power, in relation to labor for King, it, labor is a, is a necessary means of realizing and pursuing the beloved community. And I think that's just something that uh, we really need to consider as, as uh, Christians uh, who, who long for a lot more life-affirming and democratic world. Certainly, certainly. Yeah, and to really think about the, the radical way that King identified himself with the poor people in the nation. Mm. Um, that he... He could have had a much more comfortable existence um, either after he graduated from Boston University or after he successfully uh, challenged the segregation laws in Montgomery. All along his career, he had opportunities to take what would have been uh, much more comfortable positions either at northern churches or at universities. Um, And that was something that he really wanted to do. He didn't like enjoy suffering. He wasn't a masochist, but he saw the need to care about the poor people and to really radically identify with them. And to the point that he moved his family into a ghetto in Chicago towards the end of his life. Um, And yeah, really, he saw that America was what he called a sick nation. um, And that one of the primary causes of that sickness um, that he sometimes referred to as like cancerous um, was poverty um, and that, that that needed to be eradicated in order for human dignity to be respected. Absolutely. I think you're naming something that's really profound, uh, not only about King's life and his work, but but something that we 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 radically need to rediscover for ourselves as as Christians and as as anti-capitalists, as people, uh, as anti-racists and feminists and internationalists, um, is this commitment to solidarity. You're right. King was was a relative. Uh, he was not the poorest of the poor, um, and he had access to incredibly comfortable, say, teaching positions. And uh, he wrestled with whether he should stay as, as a pastor with a pretty cush uh, income or with, with uh, and with that comes a lot of social respect. But he decided to live in solidarity with those even who were worse off than him. And, mm-hmm. and I think that's, that's one of the most dangerous things that we can do today is to rediscover uh, or ask the questions: What does it mean to live in solidarity with one another, uh, rather than than 
on one hand see our work as doing like charity for for other people um, whether they're poorer than us or whether they're racialized as inferior than us or whether they live in a, a nation that is um, incredibly exploited and oppressed by um, our own nation but radically committing to living in solidarity with one another and collectively pursuing a more beloved community yeah i mean i think that's one way that that king very much continues to challenge me um because yeah his his life he was so so radically committed and and yeah i mean i i see myself as often choosing comfort over solidarity um and I think it's something that needs to sort of always be on our minds um, that we're called towards solidarity to and liberation of uh, poor and oppressed people. I mean, that's sort of the heart of the gospel. Yes. And, and that our liberation is tied up with theirs as well. Very much. If you, yeah. yeah. Central for King, yeah. for sure. Excellent. Well, uh, David Justice, thank you so much for joining me in this conversation. It's been, um, there's so much great stuff uh, for me to continue to chew on, and, but I appreciate you coming and sharing your wisdom and your passion and your, um, your heart for uh, transforming this world. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. And I really, I learned a lot too, just getting to talk to someone who is really deeply engaged in this Marxist analysis. It's, it's really helpful for me. Thank you. Thanks for listening, and a special thank you to the Patreon supporters of Faith and Capital. This work would not be possible without your financial support. Thank you for believing in this work and for believing that an alternative world is possible. If you found today's episode meaningful, you can support Faith and Capital by sending an episode to a friend, posting it on your social media, leaving a review or rating on iTunes, or contributing a few bucks a month at patreon.com slash faithandcapital. We'll talk soon.